you for that time and welcome to everyone. Um, I don't know if anybody slipped in. Is the door unlocked? Somehow the door gets locked. Okay, all right. All right, I'm going to pass around the uh, roll. And, um, you know, one of the things, as, as we said at the end of last week, it is, Tim and I were really enjoying uh, teaching together. Uh, like I said, people told us we were crazy uh, to, to teach the same book together. Uh, 25 years in Croatia, we always had our own book that we would do whenever we came, uh, our time came up. Um, but it really is fun because kind of our different styles, what we'd bring uh, different um, uh, emphases. And even, so Tim came this morning, we were, Nina and I were helping uh, Neil uh, fill up the cups. And uh, he says, are you going to make it through uh, the end of chapter two? I said, look, you said you had a lot of material and notes on the union Union with Christ, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that topic, uh, but you go with that. I'm going to go through the text and point out a few things that uh, I found very helpful this week, but um, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. So he's like, good, because i got to prepare something for Joel <laughs> and uh, uh, something he asked Tim to do that's new. I said, well, Joel rounded me up too. I come back on the 16th, and he asked me to speak in the conference on the 17th, and I don't know why I agreed to it. Um, I hope I hope I will be in my right mind uh, when I do that. But um, but but the, just trying to understand this book, which is the first time Tim has taught it, and the first time I've taught it, has been really interesting. And and trying to put myself uh, in the context, what did it look like uh, in that first century? What does church planning look like? What did the growth of the church look like? What were the tensions? And we've talked a lot about that already. But I just kind of wanted to paint a scenario. Because it is human nature to divide into groups and for like to be attracted to like, right? Uh, we understand that. Um, and it's totally fine, totally normal, as long as we don't attach merit or uh, some kind of uh, unwarranted value to those different groups. Certainly, it is good to reach out to people who are different from you, to learn from them and and that was our experience in Kenya, just to be in a different place and totally different culture and ask lots of questions. That's a, a great uh, opportunity and something we should all pursue. But typically, like attracts like. We're attracted to people like us. And so we can imagine in Antioch, uh, you got a lot of Gentile believers and uh, probably a lot of fellowship going on. And then... Uh, Paul, Barnabas are there having a, a profitable ministry. And then this group of guys comes from Jerusalem, right? Peter's already there. He's like, wow, you know, this is what, this is what God had in mind when he sent me to Cornelius. You know, this is a, it's a, it's a predominantly Gentile church. Imagine that, you know. But then these guys come from, from Jerusalem. They're self-appointed. They're claiming to be sent by James who's, you know, a leader in the Jerusalem church. And frankly, they, they have a lot of scruples, right? They've still got a lot of hang-ups that they brought into uh, Christianity with them, and they may even be a little bit confused about the gospel, or even wrong on the gospel. And the, so they see all these Gentiles, and they're eating who knows what, and they're doing, you know, they're fellowshipping, and, and it's just kind of still hard for them to sit down at the table with these Gentile believers and for there to be, you know, a plate of pork chops on the table is really difficult. And so what naturally happens? You have the non-pork chop table and you have the pork chop table and, and like attracts like, and you're kind of divided. And I got to tell you, I have experienced this in a different way many, many times. And uh, I don't want to get into a controversial subject, but I'm, I know Tim's a teetotaler. I'm a teetotaler, and it's not because I think alcohol is evil, uh, but just because some different things in my life and some uh, ministry opportunities that I have that I want to preserve, I can give you 10 to 12 reasons why I don't drink alcohol at all. But I ministered in Europe for 25 years. And... Believe it or not, among my colleagues, this could become an issue. And it, it was it used to make me more uncomfortable than it makes me now. Uh, I remember being in, in Germany, 
And one of my dear brothers came to me and says, Chris, do you mind if we have some wine for, uh, for dinner? And I said, I have no problem. Uh, as long as you respect my freedom not to drink, right? And, uh, and I've been to many uh, restaurants where 90% of the guys are, are enjoying a, a beer and 10% aren't. Um, I was in a situation in Switzerland years ago. And we had this uh, huge table, and it was, you know, um, we were eating fondue. And the whole story was, if you don't drink some wine, you can't digest this heavy cheese. And I'm like, well, watch me, you know. Um, but, I, you know, it's okay, whatever. I get all the, I've heard all the arguments. But then one, I noticed one of my colleagues was gone. And he was over in the corner, and he wasn't even eating, or he'd taken his food over in the corner. And so I went over to talk to him, a good friend. Um, he ministered in Russia. And he said, everyone's got, everyone's posted on Facebook, you know. One picture of me sitting at that table with wine bottles all the way up and down the table in my ministry. I'm like, I have no problem. I'll sit with you. It's, uh, I'm easy either way. Croatians make their own wine. They would and probably enhance my ministry if I drink more wine, I guess. Um, but, uh, but then the next thing I know, here comes another guy who's a teetotaler working in Another country, he's like, man, look at all the guys drinking here. And I'm like, relax, you know, it's okay. Uh, but the point is, no matter where you are, in whatever group, it's very easy to divide up on teams, right? And, and it's fine to have preferences. But when you start making those preferences merit, uh, oh, you're closer to God than I am, or I'm closer to God than you are is typically the way it goes, right? Uh, then that's what becomes an issue, and we need to test those things very carefully uh, in Scripture. And so just trying to understand this dynamic and what's going on, it's no wonder to me that Peter got <laughs> caught up in this. And again, no wonder to me that Paul, seeing where this leads, um, was so s- s- ready to confront Peter. And don't forget this. <laughs> This conflict is inscripturated for all of history, for all of eternity. <laughs> I mean, Peter's like, come on. Paul, did you have to write that in the, you know, Galatians? Uh, but, I mean, just think about that, how, how important this issue is. Now, we have to be careful, and in those kind of controversial issues, uh, issues of freedom, we have to be very careful not to judge one another's motives. But clearly... Paul understood. He had divine, uh, given apostolic insight where this could lead. And as I think I said earlier, uh, several months ago, um, one commentator says, if it weren't for the book of Galatians, Christianity could have been just a Jewish sect uh, uh, on, the, on the edge of, of Judaism and not uh, the gospel could have been clouded forever if Paul didn't really define these issues. And so we need to be very thankful for this book, but approach it uh, carefully and then that God would give us the grace to approach one another with generosity of spirit and um, as uh, Jonathan Edwards said, to give one another a charitable judgment. Um, Not to immediately assume, "Uh uh-huh, you um, are this way or that way or your motives are this way and that way. But it is confusing um, in today's church, uh, because there are people who want to push their freedoms. Uh, and and I, I even have colleagues that it was like, you know, I think I'm okay not drinking wine. I, I don't think I have to drink wine to experience my full freedom in Christ. But there are some people in the church today who think if you have any scruples that you're Somehow, they're judging hearts, right? Oops. Um, they're judging hearts and thinking, oh, you, you can't be a, really enjoying your freedom in Christ if you don't do these things. And we've interacted with people like that. It's like, really? I don't think so. I, don't, I think I can drink iced tea and fully enjoy all the blessings of Christ. And, and for Croatians, that's unthinkable because it's got ice in it, and you don't drink you know, things with ice in them. Um, but that's more a health issue, not a, a, a Christianity <laughs> issue. So, all that to say, as we try to 
see things from the perspective of the first century, from Paul's perspective, from the Galatians' perspective, uh, it is very uh, easy to imagine a scenario where you got two different tables and people scandalized by the freedom, the expression, the practice of one another, and how that could very easily leak over into confusing the gospel if people are not very careful. So, uh, that being said, um, let's read through this passage. Uh, ask someone, whoever wants to, to read through Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 15 through 21. And this is really a, a critical passage, not only in Paul's writings in general, but of course in this passage, and we'll talk about why in some respects. So with that background, uh, and I agree with Tim, I think Paul is continuing to, uh, maybe not word for word, but continuing to write uh, uh, what he was telling, the content of what he told Peter in this conflict. So uh, some people say the conflict ended, you know, in verse 14, Paul confronts Peter. But some people say that 15 through 21, and I agree with this, and Tim said so as well last week, that this is essentially the arguments that Paul was using to Peter as to why his position of dividing away from the Gentile believers uh, was untenable. And so he talks about his own personal testimony, what he's experienced in Christ, and he introduces the whole concept of justification, which he's going to develop in chapters 3 and 4, and then practice more in 5 and 6. So again, it's a, a pivotal passage. So who would like to read verses 15 through 21 of Galatians chapter 2? Thank you. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do not nullify the grace of God. I do. Uh, grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died with no purpose. Okay. Thank you, Russell. All right. So, very important uh, idea that's introduced here. In fact, if, uh, as I believe and I think is commonly held, this is the first epistle that Paul wrote then this passage is the first time he uses the word justify. And I know Tim talked a little bit about justification, but there's something I wanted to clear up uh, because it is a little bit confusing um, or deal with, not that uh, I don't think Tim uh, dealt specifically with this. But um, the word justification is the same root as justified, just, righteous, righteousness. And so this is the first time that Paul uses this word, and it is essential. Uh, Luther says that justification by faith is the article on which the church stands or falls. Uh, a church is legitimate or illegitimate based on what they believe about justification. How is man justified? And so there's three uh, kinds of justification that I wanted to uh, explain. Tim talked about imputed righteousness, right? You are just. You are declared righteous by imputation. Now, what does that mean? It's a big theological word. Um, it's essentially that you are declared righteous. You are uh, given righteousness. Uh, our righteousness comes from a, another source. We talk about a foreign righteousness. It's not our own righteousness. And so, essentially, um, and that's also the word reckoned that you'll find in some uh, translations uh, um, that... God reckoned us righteous. He declared us righteous. 
He transferred righteousness to our account. Um, it's a foreign righteousness. It's not our own righteousness. It is the righteousness of who? Christ given to us, right? And so the Protestant Reformed, uh, Reformed uh, Baptist uh, view of justification is that we are justified by an imputed righteousness. God declares us righteous as a judge. This is a legal term, um, language that would be used in the court of law. And, and even we understand this, right? Judges can be wrong in court, right? They can declare someone innocent, even though they're not innocent. But whatever in the process of, uh, of uh, determining guilt or innocence, the burden of proof is not met, and so they declare them innocent, and there can be no uh, double jeopardy, right? You can't, once someone's declared innocent, there's, there's no questioning that. But praise God that God is the judge of all the earth. He is all-knowing. He's perfect in his judgments, and so he can judge us, declare us righteous, and can never be wrong. But again, it's not based on whether we're innocent or not innocent. We're all guilty, right? But he's declaring us to be in a state of innocent, acceptable to him because of someone else's righteousness, someone else's accomplishment, and that is Jesus. So the biblical truth is that God declares you righteous even though you are ungodly. He credits you with a positive righteousness. And I don't know if any of you have heard the name uh, S. Lewis Johnson, older preacher, a great preacher, one of the guys who influenced, I think, John MacArthur. Um, and he goes back, and, and you've probably heard, who's heard the kind of classic definition of justification? I don't know if Tim covered this. Just as if I never sinned. And, and uh, S. Lewis Johnson says that came from the Puritans, which I'm, I don't know about that. But, um, but that's helpful, but it's not complete. And these, there, we need to add something to it. It's not only just as if I never sinned, but it's just as if I did everything God ever commanded me to do. So there's sins of omission, things that we should have done that we didn't do. I'm sorry, sin, sin, things that we shouldn't have done, but we did, so we omitted to be obedient. And then there's sins of commission. Am I mixing that up? I'm probably mixing it up. Anyway, there's things that we shouldn't do, and there's things that we should do. And it's not just that God erased the things that we did that we shouldn't do, but it's also that he gives us credit for doing all the things he expected us to do as, as his people. So uh, sometimes I think we, we, uh, we just need to break even. We need to get back, our accounts get back to zero. We sin, 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 and we go into debt, and Christ comes, pays our debt, and we're back to zero. That's not enough. We need a positive righteousness. We need a positive balance. And Christ, with all of his righteousness, all of his perfection, is attributed, declared, reckoned to us. And so it's not just as if we never sinned, but just as if we never sinned and did everything God ever expected us or committed us to do. And so that's what we need. And that's what the Bible teaches about justification. Now, there's also intrinsic righteousness. What is intrinsic righteousness? Man is good. He's essentially good. This is the liberal Pelagian view. Uh, in that sense, everyone gets saved, right? You, you, you have to kind of beat the, beat the curve. God grades you on a curve, and uh, because man is essentially good, you'll be okay. Now, that's, none of us are struggling with that, I assume. But then the Catholics came up with kind of a compromise between these two positions. And that is what is called infused righteousness. Now, they don't say exclusively infused righteousness. They'll say it's both imputed and infused righteousness. But having said that, uh, if you, how many of you are former Catholics? Any former Catholics? I know Tim is. Um, how many of you have read the Catholic Catechism? Bless your hearts. Okay. Um, I tell you, I had to read that in seminary. Most contradictory 
befuddled document you've ever read. I mean, you can find contradictions all through it. And so uh, the Catholic Catechism is about this thick, um, and it's one of those things where clearly if you multiply enough words, you'll get yourself in trouble. Um, so it's just, so they'll, they'll say one thing and then they'll say the other. They'll say absolutely contradictory things. And, and that's really their position on uh, imputed righteousness. But this is from the Council of Trent, and it says this. If anyone says that, oops, sorry, justice, once received is neither preserved nor increased, wow. You know what? I had a red background on here, and I couldn't see the squiggles uh, of misspelled uh, words, and I didn't have my wife proofread this for me. Okay, if anyone says that justice, once received, is neither preserved nor increased in the sight of God by good works, but that works themselves are no more than the effects and the signs of justification obtained, and not also a cause of its increase, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. So essentially, we would say good works follow salvation. We do good works because we are justified. But they're saying, if you do not think that your good works improve your standing with God, make you more acceptable to God, if you think your good works are only the outflow of the new life that you received in Jesus Christ, you are cursed. So, what does God have to do so that we can do good works? He has to infuse righteousness. He has to pour righteousness into us. The word comes from Latin where uh, you're a vessel and you're being filled up. So God has to give you some righteousness that is then enables you to cooperate in your salvation and earn his favor. And we would understand, no. Ephesians says you are dead in your sins and transgressions. You are enemies of God. You are not uh, a vessel that can be improved so that you have something to contribute. contribute. Uh, we were talking to Neil this morning, and he says, all I contributed was sin, <laughs> my need, my filth. Uh, that's all I brought to the table, and God took care of that. So would that essentially be like saying that God doesn't infuse, so when, when He saves you, He doesn't infuse you with enough righteousness to actually you? Well, even um, He infuses you with this righteousness before you are saved. So you need this uh, booster shot, essentially, so that you can contribute. Uh, and But it is... Genuine righteousness. Um, but the, the main point is cooperation. That we are cooperating with God to save ourselves. Sure. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure that that... I, I'm not familiar with specific Catholic interpretations of that, but I'm sure that that would fit hand in glove. In Croatia, it's fascinating. And this was a hard thing for me to understand, but the word justified is a reflexive verb. They don't like to use passive verbs at all in Croatia. So when we would say man is justified, they would use a form that says man justifies himself. And then, but they would say by faith alone um, or by faith. But to the Croatian ear that they hear, yeah, I cooperated with that. I worked with that. And so I would have to explain, you know, to our students, you, you need to be very clear when you explain these things that this is God doing the work and man is the object of the work, um, the, the, the one who receives justification. Because a, a Catholic ear hears, yeah, I'm justified by faith and by going to Mass and by saying Hail Marys and by giving alms and by, you know, last rites. I'm justified by all those things. And it makes total sense to them. And they point to the scriptures and say, that, see, that's what it says. And I'm, there's almost, almost every single uh, time you have man is saved, man is justified, almost without, unless it's in the negative, it's always going to be a reflexive verb and not a passive verb in the creation. And so very confusing, as you can imagine. So I just want to clarify that. Um, uh, Thomas Aquinas, a Catholic theologian, says, a necessity for man to achieve a level of righteousness by his... There's a necessity for man to achieve a, a 
level of righteousness by his works for justification. The righteousness of Christ is not imputed or fully accounted to a repentant sinner, sinner who is saved by Jesus. So there's this constant questioning. Do I have enough? Or are my works sufficient? It's, you're living on the scale, right? And I'm constantly trying to, to tip God's scales of justice in my favor with good works. And, and it's an exhausting way to live. It's, it's impossible. Uh, uh, we were talking with Neil this morning about, this, about the, how precious uh, assurance of salvation is. But those, those scales are tipped in our favor forever because of Christ, not because of our performance today, our failure yesterday, our hopes uh, for tomorrow, but we are forever justified. And so that, I just wanted to clarify uh, those uh, three different positions. The biblical position is we receive a foreign righteousness by faith. Faith is not a work. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But um, it, it, we are just receiving the gift of God that we cannot possibly earn. Any comments or questions about that? Yes. With this, is this could this have been where the idea of purgatory would have come out of? Because if the idea is you die and God's scales are not 100% in your favor, then what? Right. And so there's this idea that you have this interim period where you can get mm -hmm. the scales. Right, exactly. So the cynical answer to purgatory is follow the money, right? Um, and and it's I, I, again you, we don't have no one raised their hand saying they're former Catholic except for Nina. But um, and you think about communicating to your family to a family who's lost a loved one. You know, um, there's never really a end point to this, but chance even though in the in the Catholic um, at least in the Croatian Catholic uh, funeral, they'll say the angels of heaven are welcoming this scoundrel, you know, into heaven right now. But then, you know, in practice, if you have enough masses said on his behalf, which all cost, you know, come with a fee. Or candles lit or whatever else. And so you have this whole industry of uh, money. I mean, how much would all of us pay to guarantee that our lost loved ones were in heaven and and it's a, you know you can do a payment plan because you never know you never you never get the slip right and you use others merits too you have the right. of merit which is all the other saints have all this extra righteousness that i can import to this person because it's all out there and yet no saint is guaranteed right and so it's just this so that's the cynical answer but by the same token yeah if you <laughs> If you die and, and you're you're in the minus, so there's always purgatory to uh, to make up the difference and hopefully get you tipped over. We well, can't tell you when, but at some point, you know, hopefully generations from now, um, your loved one will uh, get you out, and then your loved ones will be getting you out because you've long passed uh, by then too. So it's just a very enslaving. Um, it, but by the same token, um, whatever you're trusting in, in your works is enslaving, right? It, it could be praying uh, uh, a thousand prayers. It could be, you know, uh, promoting the right progressive ideas that improves your standing and acceptability. Uh, and if you're God's society, and your uh, your friends that will accept you because you're so liberal and great-hearted, then that's exhausting too, right? Rebecca. No, relevant, but my grandfather always missed God, and in his eighties he was very worried about himself. Mm -hmm. Because he's back in his life, and so I think it's it's easy. It's just kind of creeps in to the current doctrine. Absolutely. Yeah. Character is not just a Catholic. I mean, I. It is. It doesn't mean they're not going to heaven. Right, right? right, exactly, exactly. Uh, but it is a, a horrible, I mean, uh, again, we 
as we were working this morning, we were talking about this, and it's like, God doesn't want us to be confused about whether we belong to him or not. Uh, he doesn't want us exhausted. Rest. We, he wants us to rest in Christ. Rest in his promises. Rest in, his, uh, in the truth that we belong to him. Two books written in the New Testament so that you can know that you have eternal life. First John and the Gospel of John. So that you can know with confidence that you belong to Christ. Yes, Alex. <laughs> Maybe I'm jumping ahead, but Apostle Paul here says, uh, lays out the basis on which uh, he justified in verse 20. Mm-hmm. And it's not that only Christ died, and therefore I have his righteousness, but that I died with him. Right. That I came to an end of myself. So how can you even talk about works? Exactly, yeah. And then <clears throat> the only reason God is able to pour his righteousness or impute his righteousness to me is because I was born again. I'm resurrected again. Mm-hmm. you got to have a vessel into which to pour. Mm-hmm. I become this vessel only because I died and resurrected him. Right, of God, his work. Yeah. As far as I understand, God mm-hmm. cannot pour out his righteousness into a sinful heart. He has to cleanse it first. And again, we can get into trying to divide up that instant, right? Uh, Romans says God justifies the ungodly, right? This this view says that God justifies the righteous, the godly. So he has to make you godly in order to justify you so that you have a contribution. But our contribution is we were dead, he made us alive, cleansed us, and then he uh, credited us with righteousness. Okay, um, now I just want to just briefly, actually I don't need to really address uh, chapter 2 verse 15, uh, most of you, I'm still a holdout, I still use the uh, uh, NASB, um, but most of you have the ESV and it says we are Jews by birth and not by not sinners from among the Gentiles. Paul's not being dismissive here, he's just saying, look, uh, we're Jews, and as he says twice in Romans, we have a lot of benefits. We have the oracles of God, we have the law, these are all uh, things that were uh, advantages to us in our knowledge of God. Uh, we're not like the Gentiles who were clueless, had no opportunity to know these things. Um, and then he goes on to verse 16, and I want to spend a little bit of time in verse 16 as we uh, uh, dive into this text. So, um, Tim asked last week in reference to verse 17, what was Paul uh, tearing, rebuilding and tearing down? And Troy answered, and he said, the law. And then he immediately amended his answer. He said, no, wait, I pull that back. Law keeping, I think is what you said. Or justification. justification by the law. And that's a very important distinction. I was like, perfect. Thank you for saying that, Troy. Because the law is not in and of itself wrong, bad. I mean, Paul says in Romans that the law is good, righteous. Um, it's absolute, It's given by God, right? And But this issue of the law and our relationship to the law is kind of a tricky question. Um, it's interesting if you get into this text, and again, justification by law, law maybe for us as implication, it's, it's law-keeping or rule-keeping as a means to gain God's favor or approval. And that can be what you drink or what you don't drink, what you eat, what you don't eat, what you do on Sundays, what you don't do on Sundays. Any of those rules that we add uh, that we that help us feel better about ourselves. Uh, it could be, you know, minimum threshold of service during the week, you know. Um, all these things can can cause us to begin to pat ourselves on the back a little bit and, you know, I, had a good week. God's really pleased with me this week. Um, I remember a great illustration, and I, I never could. I read it. I'm sure it was in a Jerry Bridges book. I just never could go back and find it again. But he he said, uh, you know, you you oversleep, um, and you jump in your car. You, you know, you uh, you don't have time to have your quiet time. Um, you you know, you kick the dog on the way out the door because you're in such a hurry, and he's in your way. And you jump in your car, start driving down the road, and your tire blows out. As Christians, what's the first thought? 
God's punishing me. <laughs> I didn't have my quiet time this morning. I was rude to the dog. I didn't kiss my wife when I went out the door. Uh, I'm already in a bad mood. God's you know, punishing me. But that's, that's our default, right? We didn't do enough this morning to, to get God's favor. But that is slavery. That's not where God wants us to live. No right. Oh yeah, or say yeah. Ooh, the devil did it. You know, this, uh, I gave I gave the devil a foothold this morning um, when I didn't have my quiet time. Um, so law keeping, rule keeping by means of gaining God's approval is where this applies to us. Okay. Um, <laughs> when we get into this passage, it's interesting. A, even though our translations say the law, the law, the law with a capital L, the Article, the, is not in any of these uses. It is in some of the places later in Galatians. But in this passage, it's all law, just plain lowercase l. Now, does that mean Paul's not thinking about the Mosaic law? No. In chapter 3, he makes it clear, as he argues from history, that justification by faith preceded the giving of the law, that he's speaking about the law. So the Mosaic law looms in the background of all that Paul says. However, at the same time, I don't think we can ignore the fact that he doesn't use the article here in this passage. And so I think it helps us to understand the implication for all Christians in all time is justification by law, justification by rule keeping, justification by uh, maintaining certain standards. And that's, again, man's tendency to come up with additional rules, additional expectations. And, and so I thought that was really interesting. The primary reference is, to, is clearly to Mosaic law, but the emphasis, the implication, the application for us is law-keeping, rule-keeping, the fact that we cannot impress or indebt God to us through our resume of obedience. Um, and so that's what... Paul's really battling here. Uh, God doesn't owe us anything. We can't impress God. Now, let me read verse 16 again. Um, and we're going to ask a couple of questions. First of all, verse 16 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now, Paul says, we're Jews and we know this. But how did they know this? Um, I think there's a, a strain of uh, uh, in, our, in our minds, maybe some unclear thinking that even though we know it's not true, to some degree the Jews kept the law. You know, they, they were good Jews if they kept the law. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they were saved Jews. Even, I think sometimes we even think Paul was a good Jew. No, he was a lousy Jew. He, he did not understand justification by faith. And so they knew this because, first of all, Genesis 15, 6, right? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He's going to build his whole argument on this in chapter 3. But also, um, if you look back at Genesis three fifteen, the first... Uh, Description, the first offer of the gospel, that uh, the seed of woman will come and crush the seed, uh, the seed of Satan, right? And so, crush the, crush the serpent. So it'll have to be someone else's work. It won't be our work that saves us. Um, so even from the very beginning. Now this last line is a quote from Psalm uh, 143, verse 6, uh, where uh, David says, No man is living, is righteous on his own. Uh, in this psalm, David is pleading for mercy because he realizes he cannot stand before God on his own, own on the basis of works, but only by God's mercy. So this truth is clearly in the Old Testament. And um, Job, which many people say is the prologue to the whole Bible, that Job raises all the questions that the rest of the Bible answers. And three times in Job, Job, Eliphaz, and Bildad all ask the question, can 
a man be just before God? How can sinners, how can mere mortals have a righteous standing before God? How, that is the issue. That is the question. Paul talks about this in Romans 3 as well. Uh, how can God justify a sinner and still remain righteous, just? Mm-hmm. Because there was a temple and there was a brazen altar, right? Uh, with all the sacrifices for sin. And even if you were a good Jew and kept all the law, mm-hmm. one day a year you were still sacrificed for it. Right. The day of atonement. Exactly. So even if you were literate and you could read any of those passages, mm-hmm. you knew that a lamb died for you every year. So God imputes the righteousness. Exactly. There are two lambs on the day of atonement, right? The one that. Uh, they confess, and then they send him out into the wilderness. So our sin is taken away, the picture of Christ. And then the other is the death. And so both pictures of Christ, that he is the lamb who takes the sin away, and he is the lamb who is sacrificed for us, are fulfilled. In, or Christ fulfills both of those images. Very good. Yeah, They, they knew this, um, but because of human tendency, they came up with all their laws to maintain their standing before God, and their distinction from the rest of the world. And that is just our tendency. We can't, I can't state it enough. Uh, we tend to kind of come up with our own easy-to-obey laws so that we can say we're a little bit better than the average, right? Uh, thankfully, we're well-taught, and, and we understand we have nothing to offer. We are sinners. Um, but why do you think... Paul emphasizes this so much. Three times in one verse, man is not justified by works of the law. Again, so that we can be justified by faith and not by works of the law. By works of the law, no man is justified. Three times in one verse, why does Paul emphasize this? It's critical, right? This is the what I just said, the default position of every person. This is the religion of every man on the street who doesn't understand the truth of the Bible. Paul also understood what happened to the first apostolic church in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Because when he comes back after his missionary journey, they're boasting about how all these saved are keeping the law. They're fervent for the law. Mm-hmm. He understands the disaster that happened in Jerusalem church because of that. That they've been justified by faith, but then they went to do the works of the law. And they exported it. Right, right. Men of James go and and show up in Antioch to try to push this. And and Paul's fighting this. It is absolutely critical. This is our default position. All religion, uh, from Pastor John, um, boils down to human achievement. Doing whatever is necessary to gain standing, whether it's keeping the law, keeping appearances, keeping sober, AA, right? Um, the religion of progressivism, the religion of tolerance, the religion of environmentalism, uh, wearing the right things, having your hair the right length. It is the religion of the man on the street that I have to keep some kind of rules, law, to maintain my standing, to be acceptable by whatever is my goal to be accepted. If it's the living God, then... I'll come up with the rules to, to, to please the living God. If it's society, uh, if it's my you know, uh, liberal progressive friends, if it's the group on Tuesday night that I have to uh, stand up before and say, you know, uh, I haven't had a drink since, you know, however long. Woke religion. Uh, woke religion. Any, any religion is rule keeping. And all this emphasis stands against the only true way to God, which is by divine accomplishment. It's either human achievement, what I can do myself, or what God did for me. Two, two groups in the world. Human, those who are putting their confidence in their own human achievement, and those who are putting their confidence in God's accomplishment. Our standing before God has nothing to do with what we do. And Tim asked last week, why is this so hard to accept? Because it assaults our pride. 
it takes control out of our hands. And that is hard for us to do. It affirms our helplessness. It affirms our incompetence. It affirms our impotence. And even the most humble among us doesn't want to raise their hand and say, I'm totally helpless, totally incompetent. I'm totally impotent. I completely depend on someone else to save me. But that's the reality. In our good moments, we can do that. But our default is to go back to, I got, I need to, I need to do some things this week, you know, to improve my standing. Whether it's reputation or falling into the trap of trying to impress God. Timothy George said this, The radical character of this doctrine, justification by faith, was as shocking to Paul's opponents as it was to Luther's, and it is still to many people today. It goes squarely against the gospel of self-esteem and undercuts all programs of self-salvation. And the fact that any of us can accidentally or implicitly believe that we can impress God and put God in our debt by our good behavior, it just demonstrates the depth of our sin and the depth of our uh, desperation, the impact that sin has had upon us. So we just need to, and that's what Paul wants us to get to that position. Because this is not true just in our justification, but it's also true in our sanctification. Paul will later say, how is it that you believe you started in the Spirit and you continue by works? This is Now, there is an element of our cooperation in sanctification. Uh, once we are saved, there are good works. There is uh, growth, but there is still a complete dependence upon God, upon His Word upon His resources, upon the power of Christ, the life of Christ in us, uh, which he's going to talk about in in verse 20. Um, So, we are justified by faith, not by rule-keeping, law-keeping standards that we've come up with on our own. Okay? Just want to emphasize that. Paul emphasizes it three times uh, in this verse. Also, Uh, justified through faith in Christ. What is the positive answer? Twice, uh, he says it in this verse. Christ is the object of our faith. Uh, Some people uh, today want to say that this is through the faithfulness, through the obedience of Christ. Uh, And there's an element of truth to that, but that's not what this verse is saying. Our object of faith is Christ. Linsky, a Lutheran uh, commentator, says, I love this quote, It is ever the contents of faith that justifies and saves, and never faith apart from its contents. How many times have we heard, it's just important that you believe something. That's the power of positive thinking, that you're optimistic, that you, you, you have some kind of hope. Well, if your hope is based on something worthless or false, then that's not real hope. It's not enough to believe in something. You have to believe in Christ. It is the content of our faith that justifies and saves. And he goes on to say this, It is the Christ in the faith and not the faith devoid of Christ. All the believing in the world secures nothing but damnation from the judge. But the tiniest believing in Christ secures acquittal in an instant. I love that. You can have all the faith in the world, all the hope, all the confidence in the world. If it's on the false basis, it's worthless. You're condemned for it. But if you have just a mustard seed, Christ said, right? Of faith in the right object, you're acquitted, you're saved, you're justified for all eternity. The object of of our faith is Christ. Faith is the instrument, the means by which we receive uh, faith. Uh, This is a, a struggle for us. We had a guy who really infiltrated our church, and he had this very um, unique belief that faith, uh, he pushed very hard, that faith is a work. Um, and so I did a lot of research in trying to work with him, and, and I found this illustration by, by Sproul, um, that faith is just a 
a helpless hand, open, helpless hand that receives a gift. There is no strength in that hand. There's no merit in that hand. There's no accomplishment in that hand. You're just offering, uh, bringing to the table your need, your open hand, and Christ uh, meets your need. He fills your need. He, he um, justifies you. You receive salvation as a gift from God. So, um, be careful of the argument that faith is the first work that we perform uh, to be saved. Um, saving faith is a radical gift from God. It was never a mere human um, possibility or achievement. Uh, it's no more of achievement that earns salvation than circumcision or any other uh, rule that we might keep. Um, some people misinterpret uh, Jesus' word in in uh, John, where he says, do the work of faith. But that doesn't mean, you know, faith is the first work. All right. Um, uh, Paul talked about, uh, Paul, Tim talked about uh, uh, verse 17 last week. Let's see. We talked about uh, this divine accomplishment versus human achievement. So it's not by works of the law, but by faith. Uh, I gave that quote. I'll leave that quote up if anybody wants to uh, read it. Um, let's see. Kind of short on time here. Here's a couple of more things I just want to touch on, and then Tim's going to focus more on um, union with Christ. I just want to... Um, Yeah, uh, how much time do we have? Yeah, oof, oof. We need to wrap this up. Okay. All right, so. Um, Galatians chapter uh, 2, verse 20. The human tendency, again, is to say that the legalist is the person who's just to the right of me, you know, who's a little bit more obedient than I am. And the liberal is the person just to the left of me who's a little bit more free than I am, right? We're perfectly in the middle. Um, but verse 20 gives us true balance, right? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And, and if we just looked at that phrase by itself, that'd almost be preposterous, right? Who are you? What role did you have? Where were you? You weren't at Golgotha, right? Um, but this is a topic that Tim's going to uh, talk about more next week, our union with Christ. Um, this is not an attack on the uniqueness of the death of Christ. The point is that the benefits of Christ's death come to us because we were united with him in faith. We we're united in his death and his resurrection. Paul says uh, just before this, I, the, I uh, died by the law that I might live to God. So we receive, uh, we go through death and we receive life with Christ. Um, and Paul goes on to say, and balances this, the life, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, speaks of the indwelling of Christ. Where does the power come um, from? Some people will read this and say, oh, you know, I don't live. It's all Christ in me. And you'll hear uh, the phrase, this is a phrase I heard at one point in a church I visited, or I, I was a member of in college, let Jesus be Jesus in me. And I was like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> Who else is Jesus going to be? You know, uh, it's almost this like, let go and let God, very passive uh, mentality. And, 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 and they'll quote this again, just this part of the verse saying, um, uh, Christ just needs his, to live his life in me and my identity is completely swallowed up. It's annulled. And some people even go so far as to say it, it's so complete that uh, God looks at me and sees perfection. Well, if he looks at us and sees Christ's righteousness, he sees perfection. But there are some people who, who truly believe that my sin is not an issue because 
of the fact that I'm so identified with Christ that that uh, I, I live a perfect life. And then whew, you talk about justifying sin. They can justify all sorts of sin with that mentality. We are uh, sinners. Uh, some people don't want to say, oh, no, no, I'm a saint. I'm not a sinner. We need to understand we are both sinners. We're saints. We're sufferers. We're all these things. Uh, but we need to have perfect balance. And so part of the point here is that the power in us is the power of Christ. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. Paul says that in, in Romans. Um, and also, if Christ, if we are joined to Christ, we should be very careful what we join Christ to, right? That identity, that union works both ways. So, there is a sense in which the life that I live, absolutely, Christ lives in me. But, Paul goes on to say, I live, I do live, Paul has not ceased to exist, I do live by faith in the Son of God. I am responsible. Uh, the new life is not, um, it's interesting, it, he doesn't say, the life I live, I live serving the Son of God. He says, I live by faith. So our new life is primarily characterized by belief, confidence, faith, trust in God. But we do live this, this life. We are responsible. We will give an answer. And then um, Paul ends this verse and says, who loves me, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And, I, you know, sometimes I think we maybe react too much to sentimentalism in Christianity. I uh, want to emphasize, you know, the corporate nature of the church. Uh, and there is absolutely a corporate nature of the church. But there is a very personal nature to this, right? Paul doesn't say, who loved us? He gave himself up for us. Paul with confidence says, Christ loved me. And he gave himself substitutionary atonement, substitutionary death for me, for Paul. And I know in my own heart, I can think, oh, you know, this is too, too personalized, too sentimental, too individualized in our, our Christianity. We need to focus on the body, service, and things. But there is a very true element to the fact that Christ loved me. Now, there's a song that, you know, Christ was thinking about me on the cross. I think Christ was thinking about the Father more than anything on the cross. But at the same time, he died for me. He loved me, and that's true of everyone who belongs to him. And we can have confidence and joy and receive great hope and, and strengthen that fact. So I know that I'm just kind of bouncing around, hitting some things, and that is the downside of kind of trying to, hey, uh, Tim said this last week. I'd like to insert this here and there. But uh, this is such a critical passage. As we said last week, it's a rabbit hole that goes on and on and on and on. And we, we could... Uh, uh, spend the rest of the year on this this passage, but hopefully we won't. Uh, Tim will get through his notes on the union with Christ. But uh, just to summarize Paul's argument, uh, he summarizes the alternative in verse twenty one. He says, "Look, it's not me that nullifies the grace of God. If you think that you're impressing God, if you think your rule keeping is impressive to God, then what do you need grace for? You're annulling grace. There's no grace. There's just merit." in your system. And if that's true, why did Christ die? Why did this event that is so critical to our eternity and to eternity and history of mankind, why did Christ do that if we could somehow merit God's favor? No need for the cross. And with that, I hope as a little bit of a preparation to remember the sacrifice of Christ as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths, these amazing truths that strengthen us, give us new life every day with the new life that we received in Christ. Lord, we thank you that we're not stuck trying to get refilled again, uh, top off with the Holy Spirit, that we were, we were baptized into the Spirit. We thank you that we're not trying to tip things in our, our favor as if we could, but that you have Reckon to us, declare to us all the benefits of the righteousness of Christ and that we can come boldly and confidently before you 
and help us to recognize those hurdles, those hindrances that keep us from coming to you, whether it's personal sin, whether it's doubts in your truth, in your character, in your promises, or whether it's uh, just uh, unclear thinking about uh, the truths of this of your word. And help us to be bold. Help us to be confident. And help us to take that hope that is in us uh, and that, that that would be apparent to the world around us, that they would even ask us, what is the source of your hope in this corrupt, unjust world? that we may have opportunities even in the week to come to speak of Christ and all that he's done for us, what you've accomplished in our behalf and that have relieved us from trying to achieve your favor. We thank you that we are in Christ Jesus. And I pray for anyone here who doesn't have that confidence, that you would uh, give them that confidence, help them to, to come to that confidence. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.